welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Last year, shortly after the creation of an independent oversight board charged with making policy recommendations to Facebook, we sat down with Emmy Palmore, former Director General of Israel's Ministry of Justice and one of the board's first appointees. This week, that oversight board made front-page news with its ruling on Facebook's indefinite ban of former President Trump. But there have been a number of rulings. Emmy has returned to explain how the board has approached its task. Emmy, welcome back to People of the Pod. Happy to be back again. So you joined us almost a year ago, shortly after your appointment to the Facebook Oversight Board. So now that you've been operational for nearly a year, what have you learned so far? It was a year of learning, actually. We had a lot to learn, all of us. First of all, to try and understand what is this institution that we are about to build. A lot of learning about Facebook, about community standards, about international human rights law, And to learn how to work with each other, how to deliberate, how to make decisions. So the board has handed down a number of decisions. Its first decisions came down in January. There were rulings on Russian hate speech directed at Azerbaijanis, COVID-19 misinformation. There was a case whether using a quote from a Nazi propagandist automatically signals support for Nazis, which the board ruled it did not. Can you share a little bit of your perspective on specifically that last ruling? I think that, first of all, we have an opportunity, you know, to look deep into decisions that Facebook makes hundreds and thousands of every day around the world. And we have the opportunity to try and analyze what is going wrong. And for example, this post about the Nazi quote was actually a memory. It wasn't even something that a person wanted to share, made a decision to share when it was taken down by Facebook and If you read into his account, you could realize that he meant to criticize. It was something that he wanted, you know, in the context of something that he wanted to criticize President Trump, if I'm not mistaken. So it was completely misinterpreted. So it was more, you know, you might think that it was an issue of, uh, you know, Nazis, anti-Semitism, whatever. No, it's an opportunity to learn about the mistakes that Facebook makes and try to learn, try to draw some kind of policy recommendations that will make sure that they will make less mistakes because this really intervenes, you know, with freedom of speech around the world when they're unable to understand context. And this is the point. It's really trying to find principled mistakes and try to change them in order to help Facebook to be a better platform and especially to help users to have a true opportunity to express themselves without being targeted as not respecting community standards and being blocked. And, and, you know, by the end of the day, even decision that we published today about President Trump, it comes down to the question of blocking users, right policies, holding Facebook accountable to its own policies and making sure that they are not allowing themselves to invent new policies or make decisions that are not aligned with their own restrictions. And part of the story is also the fact that Facebook is not transparent enough. 
is not consistent enough with its decisions. And again, the issue would be our policy or recommendations. Of course, this case is an extremely important case and it has a lot of implications, but it's basically about how Facebook should rule all this content that is going through its platform every day, all over the world. I'm glad you mentioned the the lack of transparency. Of course, you're you're talking about how Facebook declined to answer some of the questions that the board put to it about its own involvement in the January 6th Capitol riots. So, uh, and they did not answer, I believe it was eight questions of the 46. Out of 46, two, they answered partially and seven, they didn't answer at all. And I think that I'm happy that you noticed that because I think that this is part of what the oversight board is special about, you know, on one hand, the comments that we receive from the public, and on the other hand, our possibility to ask questions that Facebook should answer and should give explanation and should look into itself when we are asking those questions in order to understand why did they do something or are they responsible for something? And I think the world is responsible. It's not what did they do? It's more what are they responsible for? They cannot avoid, you know, trying to give answers, even if they won't give it to us during the deliberation publicly. They know now and everybody else knows that they haven't answered those questions. And it's a problem, you know. Facebook is required to comply with the board's rulings on specific posts, but it doesn't have to follow the policy recommendations from the board. You've said the public has the power to make Facebook comply with those recommendations. But what do you mean by that? First of all, every time I give an interview, I say that I'm giving those interviews because this is the real complementary part of being on the board. We expect the public and you know the press to follow the rulings and then ask Facebook, what did you do? Are you being responsive to those policy recommendations? We will publish a report, the oversight board, every year about our decisions, about our policy recommendations. But I truly hope that those policy recommendations will make the public discuss those issues and request from Facebook to respect those recommendations. Now that the Oversight Board has upheld Facebook's decision to ban the former president's account, do you see this as a precedent for other prominent world leaders? Should that come up? For example, the Ayatollah Khomeini has had some troubling posts on social media. I will not say who are the other world leaders that this could apply to. This is something for Facebook to say. But absolutely, we are dealing with political leaders, world leaders, and and it's part of you know the, the impact of this decision. It's not a specific decision about Mr. Trump. It's a decision that will apply to many other influencers and world leaders. Emmy, thank you so much for, for joining us again and, and explaining some of these rulings. And keep following us. This is the important thing. We certainly will. Thank you. Professor Jonathan Sarna literally wrote the book on American Jewish history with his award-winning 2004 volume, American Judaism, A History. He is a university professor and the Joseph H. and Bell R. Braun Professor of American Jewish History at Brandeis University, 
where he also directs the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies. With Jewish American Heritage Month beginning on May 1st, we thought now would be a great time to sit down with Professor Sarna to discuss American Jewish history and its lessons for today. Professor Sarna, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be here, Sefi. Thank you for inviting me. Let's just start very quickly with the history of Jewish American Heritage Month. How did the idea of a month to celebrate our heritage, our history, come to be? Who made it official? What's kind of the history behind this festivity? So my understanding is that as part of the festivities for the 350th anniversary of American Jewish life, which was very widely celebrated in 2004-05, and AJC played a role in that, the idea came and was greatly advanced by a congresswoman in Florida. And for a brief period, there were even government monies to create certain programs. And there have been some efforts to organize programs for the month of May and to help American Jews and Americans generally understand the American Jewish experience better. Mm -hmm. It must have been a decade ago at this point, or, or, or nearly a decade, but I still feel like it was quite recently that your book, When General Grant Expelled the Jews, came out and, and really kind of made a splash uh, around some of the ways that people think about President Ulysses Grant. In that book, you examined Grant's General Orders Number 11, in which the general ordered, quote, Jews as a class expelled from his military district during the Civil War. And then you document how later, and Chernow and others have talked about this as well in their Grant biographies, President Grant went on to be a great friend of the Jews, appointing dozens of Jews to federal jobs, taking steps to defend Jews in Russia and Romania, and even attending the entire three-hour dedication ceremony of Addis Israel Synagogue in Washington, D.C. We've talked on this podcast before about the role that Eddie Jacobson played in Harry Truman's life as the president's friend and a Jewish advocate, the role that he played in getting President Truman to support Israel's creation, and the lessons that today's advocates can take away from that story. So are there similar lessons that we as Jewish advocates today can draw from President Grant's, forgive me, from his come to Jesus moment? I think that there are. I think that the American Jewish community felt greatly empowered. After all, that someone expelled Jews, that had happened before in Jewish history. We tend to remember Ferdinand and Isabella, but actually in 19th and even 20th century, all sorts of Jews were expelled first by the Russians and by the Nazis. Jews could go to the government and first it would reverse the order. Abraham Lincoln instantly reverses the order. And that's very empowering when you fight for your rights and you win. That's a huge moment, not just for Jews, for any minority group. But then in 1868, where Jews really were looking for an apology from Grant and for evidence that he was truly sorry for what he had done and was changing course, 
they get that evidence. He does apologize, which Ferdinand and Isabella and Nicola certainly never did. <laughs> um, thinkable. And then, really, for the very first time, he appoints a Jew, Simon Wolf, who is a kind of intermediary with the American Jewish community. I think anybody in the advocacy feels that they are in the shadow of Simon Wolf, who in some ways invented that field in the United States. Some naturally uh, criticized him, uh, feeling that he kowtowed or that he was a court Jew. But I think if we look back, we will see that there are many elements of what Simon Wolf did that all future advocates really followed, you know, including today. And I think in America, one can take pride in the great successes. They didn't always win. Uh, immigration restriction was one of the great failures and was a huge setback for the American Jewish community, which had worked hard to prevent in 1924 the restriction of immigration, or at least they wanted to ensure that refugees would be admitted to America. And instead, there was a very strict quota, particularly strict against places where the bulk of Jews lived. And that had catastrophic consequences for Jews, but you don't win every battle. And fortunately, instead of giving up, there was a kind of regrouping. And especially after World War II, I think the American Jewish community rediscovered how it could be successful, what it needed to do. And while we still don't win every battle, I think the community can be very proud. And we forget that the Soviet jury movement was the greatest human rights victory of the post-war yeah. era, hugely, that's still not fully been revealed, but hugely aided by the American government, uh, both openly and behind the scenes. Several million Jews were saved by that human rights movement in ways that nobody in their wildest dreams would have predicted. None of us who were involved back then, and of course, David Harris was deeply involved. I don't think even David Harris believed that it would be quite as successful as it turned out to be with tremendous implications that we are still experiencing, transforming both American jury, one out of seven American Jews today about as a Russian-speaking Jew, and certainly transforming the state of Israel. One of the things that you just mentioned that struck me is that Grant's innovation on the theme was not the anti-Semitic act, it was actually the apologizing for it. So I'm wondering, what can today's politicians, whether Jews or others who may have wronged a community, may have wronged the Jewish community, may have wronged communities of immigrants or other minorities, et cetera, what can they learn from Grant about kind of stepping away from a hateful edge and making amends? You know, I think the fact that Grant apologized, and it's not only what he said, but what he did, it's both together, mm -hmm. did serve and does still serve as an example. I think the Jewish community 
needs to be aware that there are people who really do learn from their mistakes and change. And there have been leaders, including leaders in the African-American community, who have really transformed themselves over time. And I think in our own day, we've seen sports figures who really apologize. They didn't appreciate the hurtfulness that a comment they made would cause. And we have to be open to that. At the same time, uh, it's very important not just to look at words, but to look at actions. Um, Henry Ford famously apologized for his anti-Semitism in the 1920s. The great auto magnate was perhaps America's leading anti-Semite and produced a newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, distributed in tens of thousands of copies and later in books that called Jews the international Jew, the world's foremost problem. Now, Ford did apologize as part of a court case, but unfortunately there, I think his actions raised questions. Did he really apologize? And certainly and tragically, Ford's writings continue to circulate. However, it is important to note that the Ford Motor Company, meaning Henry Ford's grandchildren later, never stopped apologizing, not only in their actions to Jews, but they helped to sponsor uh, programs about the Holocaust. And the Ford Motor Company really showed in actions what it meant. And we have to be open to that and look to those examples as models for others to follow. As a historian, I'm sure you would warn me away from the simple belief that history repeats itself, right? We can subscribe to the rhyming theory of history. But nonetheless, sometimes when I'm worried about a given issue, I feel comforted by thinking about similar or worse situations from history and how they resolve satisfactorily. So I was hoping in the time remaining to us, I was hoping that we could go through some of the issues that are of greatest concern to many American Jews today and talk about some of the history there and and whether it's a comforting history in the end or a concerning history or what. So I thought maybe we would start with hateful political rhetoric that is employed against Jews, whether it's Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene with her Jewish space lasers conspiracy theory or Congresswoman Ilhan Omar with her it's all about the Benjamins comments. What are some of the analogs that we should be thinking about there? Is it Father Coughlin? Is it Lyndon LaRouche? Is it 90s era Al Sharpton? What are the similar stories in American Jewish history and and what can we glean there? So you can certainly find very hateful comments made even in Congress, Rankin and others in the 20s and 30s. This Sometimes these were people who opposed immigration and their attacks on Jews were related to that. But in some cases, there were folks who were sympathetic initially to the Nazis. And we've certainly seen before. I think if one looks in American political history, there have been eras of great political divisiveness, but we also can look back on the era, especially after World War II, where I think there was a sense 
of the vital center, as Arthur Schlesinger Jr. called it. And I think most Jews wanted to be part of a vital center. And there was a sense that at the extreme right, the Nazis, and at the extreme left, the communists, that was not the place to be. The best place for America and for Jews was in the center. And it's not an accident that the centrist religious movement, conservative Judaism, was the fastest growing religious movement at that time. Clearly, that moment has passed. But if one looks at American history, I think there have been times of polarization and times when we've seen a great need to come together. And uh, one suspects that that will be the case in our day as well. Indeed, it's been rather interesting to me to have a president who indeed harkens back to that post-war era in talking about, can't we come together? Can't we forge a new center? I don't know if it will succeed, but I do know that if we were to look at American history from the beginning of the 19th century onward, one would see a kind of cyclical pattern. And I think it's precisely that pattern that you know gives us uh, mm-hmm. hope for the future. So another thing people talk about a lot nowadays is the political polarization, not kind of in society writ large, but around our issues in particular, right? Israel has become a political football. Even anti-Semitism has become polarized with political actors only able to see it on the other side of the aisle from their own. What analogies do we find there in our history? I mean, was immigration on the eve of the Holocaust, was that kind of an issue maybe that we look to as a historical analogy? Well, Chris, the biggest analogy, and we forget how strongly divided Jews were, was Zionism itself. There certainly were Jews, especially Jews with a background in Central Europe, who thought it was a dangerous idea, who were deeply opposed to the creation of a Jewish state. They certainly had influence in the family that ran the New York Times. And there were, you know, within the American Jewish committee itself, there were divisions and so on. I would say whole families were torn apart by the Zionism issue. And we've probably forgotten in the wake of the establishment of the State of Israel and its success, how divisive that was. And it's important to know that it's only really um, since, say, 1928 election that we've seen large numbers, high percentages of Jews support a single party, in this case, Democratic Party. If you go back before then, the Jews were very much divided, and it's impossible to find people who thought all Jews voted this way or that way. You had Louis Marshall and you had Louis Brandeis, and uh, the two Louis, both of them probably the greatest lawyers in some ways of the day. Certainly the greatest Louis of the day. Right, the greatest Louis and the most amazing records, one at Columbia and one at Harvard. And nevertheless, politically, the two were very much opposite. 
In 2004, as we mentioned, you published the award-winning American Judaism, A History. If you were to write a companion volume covering the nearly two decades since that book's release, what would you highlight as the recent critical moments in American Jewish history? I certainly highlight the sense in American Jewish life that there's so many ways to be Jewish, that Jews of color, there are gay Jews, LGBTQ Jews. The sense of Jewish community has changed. One of the most remarkable changes that has taken place. Once upon a time, the Jews said, oh, so-and-so looks Jewish. And that wouldn't have been seen as problematic. Everyone assumed that was true. A lot of Jews looked Ashkenazi. Today, my students think the very phrase looks Jewish is hilarious. And in one generation, we have seen what one scholar calls the end of Jewish radar, meaning that sense that visually I can look at someone. Obviously, there are better known moments. I think the economic changes in the 21st century, I think, and the attack in Pittsburgh as an important moment going forward. I think the Madoff scandal uh, had vast impact on Jewish life, including financially. All of those things I mentioned, and of course, there have been significant religious changes the rise of orthodoxy and so on in the 21st century as numbers change and movements move and more and more Jews, especially young Jews who claim to be spiritual but not religious, none of the above and the like. So that's good from my perspective as a historian. If a history had stopped when I wrote my book, the field would go out of existence. <laughs> Fortunately, there's been a lot of history, and it's worth remembering that the community changes. And I have to say, in writing a new final chapter, one sentence said, wow, so much has changed in the two decades since I handed in the manuscript of the book. And you sort of wonder how much will change in the next two decades. And it's not just that the change comes from above as if God makes it happen. We make it happen. And there's nothing more important than to remember that we make history. We make those changes. We shape the future. It doesn't just happen. The book is American Judaism, A History Second Edition, which our listeners can find and purchase, I'm sure, wherever books are sold. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us and a happy Jewish American Heritage Month to you. To you too. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Holly Huffnagel, AJC's U.S. Director for Combating Antisemitism. Holly, when you're talking with your family and friends this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Thank you, Steffi. At our dinner table, before we talk, we are first going to do something. I'm going to ask my husband to take a new online AJC quiz on anti-Semitic terms and tropes. AJC developed this quiz to help educate people about the history of anti-Semitism and what it looks like today. After we discovered last fall that nearly half of U.S. adults are not familiar with the term anti-Semitism. 
The quiz is connected to AJC's launch of Translate Hate. This robust illustrated glossary of more than 40 anti-Semitic terms and expressions. Terms like Rothschild, Cabal, Holocaust, Cosmopolitan Elite, QAnon, Dual Loyalty, Blood Libel, Poisoning the Well, and the list goes on. They're all included. So why define all of these terms? You see, one of our biggest messages at AJC is the need to promote national cohesion and understanding around the issue of anti-Semitism. That combating it is a societal issue for all Americans and a strengthened American civil society response is absolutely essential. When I think about our civil society, I can't help but think how impressed Alexis de Tocqueville was with our civil society, which he called voluntary associations after he traveled to America from France in the 1830s. He observed that America's power came from the bottom up, that in town after town, when Americans wanted to do something, they didn't wait for the government. They just got together and did it. This was the heart of the American project. What de Tocqueville saw as the greatest danger to democratic freedom was people ceasing to interest themselves in the welfare of others. And he named this threat to democracy in America as individualism. One way we can push back against rising individualism today is to recapture that compassion for the well-being and safety of others. So when Jews speak out against other forms of hatred and discrimination, and when non-Jews speak out against anti-Semitism, when they know what anti-Semitism is, we will be more effective. So what will start with taking a quiz may end in a discussion about political philosophy and restoring Americans' values. But in the meantime, we will just have to wait to see my husband's score. Good luck to him. <laughs> Thank you so much, Holly. Indeed, fighting anti-Semitism is everyone's responsibility. And at our Shabbat table, we will be talking about the Washington National Cathedral's newest addition to its iconography, a stone carving of revered Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel, unveiled last month. Besides figures from the Hebrew Bible, dead for thousands of years, Wiesel, who died in 2016, is the only Jew carved into the edifice of the Gothic cathedral. But some people found the decision to include him in a cathedral, a Christian house of worship, anathema. One reader emailed Michelle Borstein at the Washington Post, the Nazis could never have done what they did without the help of many, many, many good Christians. He does not belong there. Now, Holly, as a committed Christian devoted to fighting anti-Semitism, you probably were not surprised by this criticism, having heard it before. But I asked the cathedral's spokesman, Kevin Ekstrom, if the cathedral expected it. He said, because Wiesel was Jewish, they knew the issue had the potential to be delicate, so they carved nothing without consulting Wiesel's widow, son, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, as well as several rabbis, to make sure it didn't violate the commandment prohibiting graven images. In a synagogue, yes. In a church, no. What we wanted to avoid was the idea that this was a Christian church appropriating a Jewish figure that was universally beloved in the Jewish world. And we didn't want it to smack of anything inappropriate, he said. He emphasized that Wiesel's message is precisely why he belongs in the cathedral. Guarding against evil in the world, standing against genocide, keeping vigilant against indifference to the suffering of others, universal themes that transcend any religious difference. And Elie Wiesel, he's not just one of many faces carved into the walls. He is quite literally the first face you see when you enter the building now, Kevin said. He's looking down at you, and he's looking into your eyes, and you're kind of looking up at him. There's a moment where it almost feels as if he's watching, 
and that's by design. We're hoping his likeness will serve as a reminder to everybody who comes into that space about everything that he endured and what our responsibility is now to carry on that legacy of preventing the kind of genocide that he survived. There's a lot of thinking that Christians should do when they see that carving, Kevin said. It's a little bit intentional to try to make sure nobody forgets how the church failed, how humanity failed, and that we've got to do better and never forget what happened. Anti-Semitism in America has been on the rise ever since Wiesel died, Kevin pointed out, and it is absolutely incumbent on each and every one of us not to forget what happened. I happen to believe in redemption, and, well, I think you do too, Holly. I agree, Manya. And as the faithful pass through the doors of the cathedral and see Elie Wiesel, may it serve as a reminder in his words that the opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And all of us, not just Christians, need to hear that. I envy you that you are there in Washington, Holly, and you will have the opportunity to see that carving before I do. But I certainly will make a trip to do so. And that's what we'll be talking about, perhaps planning, at our Shabbat table this week. Sevi? Mani, you took such profound things away from the articles about this new carving of Elie Wiesel. I, as a Star Wars fan, got hung up on the fact that apparently there's also a carving of Darth Vader's face somewhere outside the cathedral, very high up. You can find this on Wikipedia, which my teachers, for some reason, told me wasn't a reliable source, but I always trust implicitly. There's a little article called the Darth Vader Grotesque. It was apparently a children's competition in the 80s run by National Geographic World, and some child won the chance to pick what went up there, and they picked Darth Vader. So there you go. <laughs> a famous motif in Zionist history is that of the new Jew. The early Zionists often denigrated the Jews of Eastern Europe as pale, hunched over ancient texts. The Zionists would have said outmoded texts, trying to get through life without upsetting the Christians who ruled their world. In contrast, the new Jew was tanned and toned, worked the land of Palestine and had left the ancient Jewish religion behind in favor of socialism and agrarianism. Diaspora Jews were unenlightened, unevolved, unfulfilled. Now, the calamity of the Holocaust made it unfashionable to speak so sneeringly and disparagingly of the Jews who didn't live in the nascent Jewish state, but the decades never really bridged the gap between Israeli Jews and the Jews who lived elsewhere. Now, world Jewry is basically bipolar with about 90% of Jews living either in Israel or in the United States. And as Israel has come into its own economically, and Israeli Jews are no longer reliant on American Jews, that gap, cultural, religious, political, sometimes feels like it has widened to a chasm. Enter Israeli comedian and late-night host Guri Alfi. Alfi has a new show on the Israeli public broadcaster Khan called the New Jew, which focuses on the uniquely American form of Judaism and includes interviews with AJC Board of Governors member Rabbi Angela Buckdahl and former AJC Golden Fellow journalist Barry Weiss, among many others. Now, I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, though episodes are newly available online and I'm excited to dive in. But what's really exciting about the show is that Israelis are watching it and learning about American Judaism. One scholar I know, Daniil Hartman, talks about a Judaism of being and a Judaism of doing. In Israel, with a Judaism of being, you simply are Jewish. 
your language is Jewish, your calendar is Jewish, your friends and family are Jewish, engaging in Judaism requires no effort on your part. In America, by contrast, surrounded by Christianity, Jews have to do Judaism. It's an active choice, and one many Jews don't make. But the Jews who do choose Judaism often have powerful connections to their Jewishness in a way Israelis don't and can't even understand. In Israel, reform doesn't refer to URJ camps and singing rabbis and accessible Judaism. It's simply a slur that means something akin to a self-hating Jew. Now look, there's a lot we need to do on this side of the Atlantic to help American Jews feel more connected to our Israeli brothers and sisters. But that work definitely has to happen in Israel too. And the new Jew with Guri Alfi seems like a very good place to start. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.